There's been increasing engagement with Africa. It's, but what American governments do not do very well is tell our story. Mm. Uh, we saw that in the recent pandemic, uh, where you know China sends a carton of PPE and it's a new news story. No one talked about the $80 billion that in the last 20 years, since President Bush, the U.S. has invested in African health care. Happy Wednesday and welcome to the Brentus Foundation podcast, where we talk about the African continent's biggest and most pressing issues and leverage best practice, not just on what to do, but how to do it. I'm your host, Marie Noel Ngokolo, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. So today we have a very exciting conversation lined up for you. I had the chance to speak with Ambassador J. Peter Farm. So Ambassador Farm is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council's Africa Center, where he was once former vice president for research and regional initiatives and director. Um, he returned to the center in March 2021 after concluding public service as United States Special Envoy for the Sahel region and the United States Special Envoy for the Great Lakes region of Africa at the U.S. Department of State. So prior to joining the Atlantic Council in 2011, Ambassador Farm was a tenured Associate Professor of Justice Studies, Political Science and Africana Studies at James Madison University, where he was Director of the Nelson Institute for International and Public Affairs. So today we will be speaking with him about US-Africa relations over the years and some of the things that we could or need to be thinking about when we sort of couch the US-Africa policy um, as nominations sort of get ratified um, in the US. Ratified, I hope is the word I need to use. But without further ado, let's get straight into the conversation with Ambassador Peter Pham. So Ambassador Pham, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, it's really good to have you here. I hope your day is going well. Very good. Thank you very much, Marie Noel. It's a, it's a pleasure to uh, talk with you. Yes. Um, so the main purpose of this conversation really is just to sort of understand um, U.S. policy towards Africa over time, and especially under the current administration, what that could look like. Um, and maybe even to understand how that, you know, deviates from um, previous administrations. I'm really keen to hear sort of your thoughts because you sort of studied, you've worked and practiced in this area. So I think the first question that would be helpful is what can we expect for U.S. policy towards Africa given recent nominations? And what informs that approach? Okay, I think, uh, Marie Noel, if you don't mind, let me take a step back and sure. put this a little bit into context. The, the one nice thing or pleasant thing to work on Africa policy in Washington is that unlike so many areas of our foreign policy, the Middle East, Latin America, East Asia, there's very little partisan bickering uh, or polarization on Africa. America's policy toward Africa as policy has been fairly consistent since the end of the Clinton administration through Bush, Obama, Trump, and now to Biden. So in that sense, it's largely been the same policy with lots of constants, but at the same time, certainly changes in accents, in persons. And so I would say the policy by and large will be continuous. And we've already seen indications of that. And we can discuss those in greater detail. But certainly, uh, because of the American system of government and our constitution, and the way we handle appointments, there's a whole raft of new people coming in. And certainly one can 
try to read the tea leaves, although to be fair, many of them are not yet in position. Uh, for example, Ambassador Molly Fee, who's been nominated to be Assistant Secretary for African Affairs, yeah. that nomination just came a few weeks ago. If I were to hazard a guess, given the Senate calendar, given other things, uh, we will be fortunate to have her confirmed in position uh, by the end of the summer. That will be oh, a wow. speedy confirmation. So uh, there have been nominations, but it will take some time to get those people in. But by and large, I think the policy remains consistent. Yeah. And you mentioned that, there, you know, there are sort of some deviations over um, sort of um, administrations. Can you speak a little bit um, to that? And especially how the previous administration did, especially when we think about Africa and U.S. affairs? Well, I think the, the uh, two things. Uh, what One sees in the pattern of appointments mm -hmm. uh, uh, where the emphasis might be. Mm -hmm. uh, because of the American system uh, of government uh, and how we manage executive branch appointments, uh, one tends to look at where the political appointees, those that change with every administration, where they're placed and how connected or not connected those individuals are. Mm -hmm. uh, in the last administration, State Department was, uh, I was served in the State Department. That was where a lot of the politicals were. And so they had the have to drive policy. What's been interesting in the Biden administration, I think as an observation is, uh, they've picked a number of people for slots at state and defense, but they're all career people, very well qualified, many of them, many of them are friends, yeah. but they're not political appointees in the classic sense of political appointees. Mm. Whereas a very high profile political appointee was named to head USAID, uh, Samantha Power, former ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, a, the highest ranking uh, American of immediate African origin, Wali Ayudemo, uh, born in Nigeria, it was confirmed by the Senate to be deputy, uh, deputy secretary of the treasury. So from that one could, you know, two data points do not make a trend, but I think the, the policy is going to be driven primarily at that level by aid, by perhaps uh, because Wally's very involved in anti-corruption, anti-money laundering efforts on, on that aspect, yeah. rather than the policy necessarily driven by politicals on the state at the State Department level. Yeah. So, given um, recent sort of domestic occurrences in the UK, right? Can we still expect an engaged US or a more rolled back US when it comes to you know thinking of places like Africa and whatnot? Considering you know some of the things that have happened in the past year, earlier this year. Well, I well, I I don't think they have a. Uh, immediate, as much of an immediate bearing. It, it was rather ironic uh, when the day that the uh, attack on the Capitol occurred in Washington, I was actually leading a presidential delegation to the second inaugural of President Nana Kufuado in Accra, where they had their own, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, robust opening of parliament all, in that all night session. I'll put it that way diplomatically. So. But I, I think it has less to do with uh, what I think will have a lot to do uh, with the direction of policy has been the how engaged are the highest levels or where the politicals are, and as I said earlier. And I have to say, I'm a little disappointed. And that's not because I served in the previous administration, but the fact that there are no high level politicals appointed to 
diplomatic positions affecting Africa. Uh, they're career people, very competent, professional, but they don't won't have the political heft that a political appointee will within among other political appointees. And then there is the very disappointing uh, so-called virtual visit to Africa that uh, Secretary of State uh, Tony, uh, Tony Bl and, uh, Blinken had to Kenya and Nigeria. Now, I'm very glad he engaged two very important countries, Kenya and Nigeria. But on the other hand, I think it's a little patronizing, to be quite frank, uh, to declare a video conference a virtual visit any more than our conversation here is my virtual visit to uh, Joburg. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's a bit patronizing. I've, I've not seen, I, I actually looked, uh, none of his other video conferences with Europe or Asia were qualified as virtual visits to Europe or to Asia. So it's, it's a bit patronizing. Uh, and to be, uh, and again, I'm trying not to be partisan, but it, it, the perception out there is democratic administrations tend to be more engaged in Africa than Republican ones. But one sees the innovations in policy largely in Republican administrations, uh, PEPFAR under George W. Bush, uh, for example, mainly because uh, of the placement of political appointees to senior positions where they're able to drive uh, some innovation. Awesome. And I mean, I, the phrasing of that was I found to be quite interesting as well. And also slightly uh, funny, maybe wonky story. So the anecdote about Ghana, I was actually in Ghana at the time. Um, and it was rather um, slightly embarrassing on occurrence. Um, but it was so weird to see that happening in the US and that happening in Ghana, basically, um, at the same time. Um, but uh, I stayed up, I stayed up all that night. Oh, and I was struggling between CNN International <laughs> with the very depressing coverage at home yeah. and the coverage of uh, the shenanigans at the National Assembly. Yeah, yeah no, it was, it was quite the scene. It was literally the same as well, just CNN, what's happening there. Coming back to that, it was, it was quite terrible. Um, Although, very, very funny, I, I, I was, I'm not happy either of those things happened, but on the other hand, it, it saved me from anyone asking me any embarrassing questions the exactly. next day because uh, <laughs> no one was in a position to ask me. <laughs> Not at all. We couldn't quite point fingers that day. Uh, but I would say to some extent, I think given that the U.S. is much bigger, it took up more space in international news. So to some extent, yes. we kind of got away with that. Um, but another question I had for you is, so you've sort of studied, you've written, um, and you've worked um, basically on the continent at length. Um, and so over the past, what, two to three decades, how well would you say the U.S. has done engaging the African continent in a mutually sort of beneficial way? Has that been a mark of the relationship or is it really more you know American interests first which would also make sense but I was just wondering what your thoughts are on um, what you see you know the history being and what I think in administrations both Democrat and Republican there's been a deepening engagement with Africa mm. uh, over the course of the last quarter century mm. uh, I you know I'm old enough uh, uh, to re still remember the day back in 1995 when the Clinton administration actually had a document that was called the Strategy for Sub-Saharan Africa, which said that the U.S. had no interest in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and then, of course, you, you uh, maybe uh, it's a little over you, but I remember year 2000, uh, The Economist, The Hopeless mm -hmm. Continent. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, but the perceptions have changed. And over the last quarter, and during administration, 
beginning with the end of the Clinton administration, President Clinton's visit uh, to Africa, the passage of AGOA under President Bush, the renewal of AGOA, the launching of PEPFAR, uh, the Millennium Challenge uh, Corporation, there's been increasing engagement with Africa. It's, but what American governments do not do very well is tell our story. Uh, we saw that in the recent pandemic, uh, where you know China sends a carton of PP, uh, PPE, and it's a new, new story. No one talked about the eighty billion dollars that, in the last twenty years since President Bush, the U.S. has invested in African healthcare. Uh, Another that even almost a billion was spent building labs. Many of the testing that takes place uh, across the country during this past year were done in labs that were initially set up uh, and paid for by America. Uh, the, the director of the African CDC, Dr. John Ngengasong, is actually a U.S. citizen uh, of African origin. Uh, he's an employee of the U.S. government which continues to pay his salary and seconds him to the African Union to run the African CDC. So there's a, quite a bit of investment. We're not very good at telling that story. And that's our, our fault, not anyone else's. <laughs> no, in interesting point there. Um, so I think sort of along those lines, right, what are some of, if we're looking at sort of U.S. policy towards Africa, U.S. relationship with Africa, and we know, you know that's a whole lot of countries and sometimes it requires different approaches, but would you say there are particular or key areas that are lagging in terms of the relationship and what would it take to develop or enhance those relations in those areas if there are? Well, I would say that the one area that has grown increasingly important and I uh, uh, say the Trump administration did very well with, although a lot more needs to be done, is an emphasis on the private sector. Uh, over the years, we've built up uh, over decades, a very robust aid infrastructure. On top of that, we've added uh, more innovative solutions like the Millennium Challenge Account, which help fund major infrastructure in countries that are uh, doing well on performance indicators. Uh, PEPFAR has done an amazing job saving lives and building up medical capabilities across Africa. So in those sectors, we've done pretty well. On the, even the security assistance, uh, despite a bumpy start at the beginning, U.S. AFRICOM is, the Africa Command is generally welcome across the continent, uh, you know, even if one discounts uh, Pres President Buhari's recent invitation for them to relocate to Nigeria, even if one puts that aside, the fact is they're well-received, they're engaged, uh, and their assistance is, cooperation is largely welcome. Where we've been lagging is probably the private sector. Uh, we talk about business. We talk about its importance. I think intellectually we recognize its importance. But what we've, what we've done concretely to drive that, I think we've done some great things, but I think a lot more needs to be done. Uh, I'll flag uh, last year, right before the pandemic, uh, I flew to the Democratic Republic of the Congo on behalf of the Secretary of State to represent him at the signing of an MOU between a major American corporation, GE, and the government of the, of the DRC for uh, studies leading to potentially a two to $3 billion investment by GE in, in medical capabilities and in uh, energy production in the DRC. So we're, 
we're moving in that direction, but certainly a lot more needs to be done and a lot more needs to be supported. What does that look like? What more do we need to be thinking about? What more do we need to be having in conversations? Because sometimes when I look at, you know, some of the documents and agreements and stuff like that, we have a lot of these things in writing. It's usually implementing them, actually making them happen. So what are some of the things that, you know, have worked in the past that we need to emphasize a bit more, stress a bit more to sort of enhance or develop, you know, the private sector in a lot of African countries? Yeah, well, w well, one thing that uh, has happened, didn't get much attention, was uh, several years ago, uh, the U.S. Congress passed during the Trump administration, almost unanimously, uh, broad bipartisan support, a restructuring of our development finance and created a new institution, the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, DFC, uh, which brings together a part of U.S. aid and then parts of, uh, of OPIC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, and builds a new institution. Uh, what's unique about it is through this legislation, the amount of money, capital available for uh, supporting the private sector uh, in Africa, but also other places, but Africa was the primary uh, target in mind, was doubled from roughly 30 billion US dollars to 60 billion. Uh, and then, and I think the key innovation, this, the DFC was given the authority, which didn't, it didn't have before, its predecessor organizations didn't have before, to take equity shares in ventures. They're never going to be large equity shares. Uh, they're going to be very small, but in a way that serves as a political guarantee, and it helps lower uh, uh, political risk. And it's catalytic in encouraging others to invest. Uh, and so we're seeing those projects now. Uh, the pandemic year certainly put things to a screeching halt, but things continue. And we're seeing now some of the deals that have been germinating uh, coming to fruition. Uh, and I think we'll see more of it as the DFC tries to spend the capital that's been allocated to it. Yeah, awesome. And you mentioned the, uh, the, the pandemic, which is one of the things we cannot ignore. And so if we're thinking about, you know, sort of U.S. policy, depending on, you know, who, you know, passes, um, what, how do we think this might play out? Or I guess maybe a more interesting question, which you probably touched on with the private sector would be, if you were to speak to whoever gets nominated in the end, and they are thinking about this idea of building back better or coming out of the pandemic, what would you tell them are some of the maybe top three things that they need to focus on, especially when it comes to, you know, U.S. relations with Africa and dealing with the economic effects of um, COVID-19? Well, uh, several things. Uh, I, probably things I would say irrespective of the pandemic, but they need to be borne in mind. Mm. First and foremost, uh, Africa is the future. I firmly believe it. I would not have dedicated my life uh, to this if I didn't believe it. And so it's worth the investment, it's worth the attention. Uh, it's not a second tertiary issue, it should be front and center. Uh, and the argument I would make to this administration, the Biden administration is, uh, if you have your ambitions for a decarbonization of our economy, it's not gonna happen without Africa. And I'm not just talking about rare minerals, everyone's talking about that all of a sudden, uh, but also much more common minerals. Uh, most people don't realize and are surprised when I tell them that, uh, and you, you probably know this, but people are surprised that not only do we need the rare earth elements to for magnets and other things, 
Uh, we also need old-fashioned minerals. Uh, the amount of copper used in an electric vehicle is upwards of 10 times what is used in a conv conventional catalytic uh, uh, engine. And so you're gonna need a lot more of those as well. So Africa is critical. Second thing I, I would make is this is for the long term. We can't look for quick and easy. We have to look for the long term. And we've we've actually proven we can do this. We did it with the healthcare very quietly, very uh, without much fanfare, in fact, without much credit or thanks, spent you know, 80 billion on uh, on healthcare over 20 years and built up enormous infrastructures that didn't exist before. So we can do this when we discipline ourselves to, to do so. And then I think thirdly, the thing I would say would be government has a role, but its role is to make life easier, facilitate the private sector. There's no way, politically speaking, we're ever going to get, uh, do I think you more development assistance should be available? Yes, I'm probably heterodox for saying that in my own party, but that's why I believe. But I also realize there's never going to be the political will to have as much money needed appropriate out of public funding that is needed for development. So where is that funding going to come from? It's only going to come from the private sector. So government should leverage what it has uh, in order to be catalytic to the private sector. Awesome. I mean, if I could clap without disturbing everybody, I probably would, especially at that point, because what that's one of the things we find is increasingly like important. Governments should facilitate, but really just get out of the business of doing business and let the private sector do that. Um, so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about before we sort of wrap up is you know, after increasingly, you know, we recognize that, you know, regional economic opportunities are important um, to achieve sort of the level of scale that a place like, you know, a continent like Africa needs in addressing some of its like economic handicaps, if I can call them that. So how might we see U.S. engage with AFTA or I guess what role should it play? And on the flip side, what do you think might best serve African negotiators and strategists and some of these conversations with a country like the U.S. to ensure that, you know, the gains that we do expect from AFTA, for instance, are actually realized and are also inclusive, which is quite important? Well, I think we're increasing coming to the realization uh, in policy circles in Washington that uh, although bilateral relations are important with individual African states, uh, regionalization is necessary. Yeah. Uh, I held two regional portfolios, first the Great Lakes and then the, the Sahel and still handling a bit of the Great Lakes. Uh, and recognizing that although our embassies do a lot of good work on the ground, our ambassadors in the capitals, there are issues that transcended any one country. And Africans are increasingly dealing with them on a regional basis. So you have to be able to engage regionally. Uh, and so politically, diplomatically, we did that with people like me who had portfolios that extended beyond the borders of any one country. Uh, we're also beginning to programmatically deal with it. Millennium Challenge, one of the great innovations established by President Bush, uh, expanded uh, under President Obama and continued under President Trump. Uh, there, we, we used to be the compacts were always strictly bilateral, the U.S. and a compact with X, Y, or Z country. Uh, now we're authorized to have regional compacts. So the components of these compacts, yes, they have to be based somewhere in some country, but parts of it which flow to neighboring countries as well, because they're all tied together. Last year, uh, one of the countries in the Sahel region that I was responsible for, Burkina Faso, we signed a 
compact with Burkina Faso, the second Millennium Challenge compact they had for uh, roughly half a billion US dollars over five years uh, with the purpose of doubling the number of Burkina Bay who have access to affordable, reliable electricity in five years. But there was a component of that uh, compact that also tied Burkina Faso also into a regional network of energy as well. So, you know, recognizing the regionalization. So I think increasingly we're, we're, uh, we're recognizing that and engaging that way uh, in our programming. Uh, how can uh, Africa effectively engage or Africa engage with administrations? I think part of it is, uh, I think recognizing uh, and identifying where decisions are made. Uh, very often, uh, I, I meet uh, with leaders or deal with leaders who stand on ceremony, and that's important, and I acknowledge that and respect that. But in reality, policy is not always made at the very top. It follows direction from the very top, certainly, and should, but policy is made at a lower level. And it's to engage the most relevant level uh, that is important. And then as for scholars and think tanks and others, it's to make your product, and, and I've, it's a hard lesson I've learned myself over the years, working as a, as an, first as a professor and then a think tank uh, scholar, is taking my work and putting it in a form that's digestible by a, someone working very, very busy in policy. Uh, when I was serving in the State Department, I'm an academic, I love data, I love footnotes, but if someone sent me a valuable piece uh, for that, that gets put in the pile that if I have a couple hours free Sunday afternoon, I'll read it and enjoy it very much. But if you want me to read it that day while I'm triaging everything else, it better be in a page or less <laughs> uh, or else it's going to go into my well-intentioned to be read pile. Uh, uh, you know, and I think that that's a lesson I learned myself as a scholar engaged in policy, but it's uh, one I certainly definitely learned from the other side of the table as a practitioner. No, that's fantastic. And I think as we wrap up this conversation, that's something I wanted to get to as well, because, you know, a good part of our audience are sort of young research analysts, policy practitioners and things like that. And so I think I'm just curious, did you, let's say, 30 years ago, think you would be where you are and in this career? And how did you end up here, where you are today? Well, I, I always wanted to be involved in policy. And I, I recognize, I think one of the fortunate things I had early on was recognizing that if I was going to stay, I could stay in the ivory tower. Yeah. And I was a tenured professor. I could stay in the ivory tower, uh, write lengthy articles and books, and I've uh, written them uh, over the years. Uh, and that's very gratifying, it's enriching work, uh, rewarding work. But if I wanna have an impact, if I wanna take that information, those ideas, and have a real impact that can change people's lives for the better, I have to get down in the mud uh, and work the, the policy angles. It's not as clean, it's not as uh, necessarily uh, ideal, but it, it's where things are. So I've always had that tension within myself and trying to bridge both both worlds to uh and so uh i that personal tension actually helped me uh 
over time become more relevant as a scholar and an expert that people could turn to because I could cast it in terms that were usable. And certainly now returning to that uh, from uh, government, I certainly am even more uh, uh, attuned to what would be helpful to people I've engaged in. Uh, you know, the there was a, there was a day when someone asked me a question, and you would get every the the answer would include antecedents, uh, all the shades of gray, and all that. Uh, but I've learned, you know, uh, recently some of the people who are in office now, some of the have reached out to me on various matters, and I've learned to answer it in uh, to get the question bottom line up front in an email. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And I think two last questions for you. What would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned? Um, and the second one is what surprised you the most about working in sort of this space, if I can call it international relations, international development? Well, I think the smart lesson I learned is one I knew already, but it just reinforced it, is the importance of deep personal relationships uh, over time, sustained over time. I became, I was appointed the first ever U.S. Special Envoy for the Sahel, March 1, 2020. Uh, the appointment came about because uh, the U.S. received a lot of pressure and requests from its allies to engage in the Sahel and to engage uh, regionally in that, right? We didn't have any equivalents. The European Union had a special representative for the Sahel. France had a special envoy for the Sahel, on and on. And we didn't have anyone to engage with them. And so the position was created. I was appointed 1st of March. Well, that was just in time to have my wings clipped by the, the, the pandemic. Uh, so the first two months of my tenure, I couldn't travel anywhere and special envoys were supposed to travel. After the first two months, uh, beginning in June, uh, things lightened up and I traveled rather extensively all the way up to the end of the administration. But for the first two months, I didn't have that capability uh, or ability or freedom. But because I had worked in this area before, uh, in fact, that I, of the heads of state that I dealt with, uh, uh, the five heads of state in the, in the G5 Sahel, Three of them I had already I had hosted multiple times in the U.S. So in that sense, because of that prior relationship, I was able to engage. So I didn't meet them for the first time uh, via Zoom call. I broken bread with them in their own countries. I hosted events for them uh, in Washington, both when they were out of government and when they had won elections. Uh, and so it was not as awkward meeting them for the first time. Uh, as officially as envoy over a zoom call or a webex uh, exchange because we knew each other we could uh there was a trust there that can't be built uh you know via this medium as useful as it is so i think the importance of those relationships uh uh very much just i always knew that always believed it but uh, certainly my experience because of the pandemic reinforced that yeah. uh the the other thing uh i that uh, similar is that this media useful as it is and it, you have all sorts of prognosticators talking about you know the end of all these sh uh, in-person diplomacy I don't think so and the reason I say that is there are certain things that can only be done in person uh, nego certain negotiations where you take a break and you walk take a walk together and work and get to know each other and do the and 
conversations that can't easily be had with someone potentially recording you uh, uh, via video. Uh, and so I don't think that's going to ever, that's going to ever change. No, that's amazing. But sometimes I actually even worry about that, especially for sort of the young people coming up in this space, right? Because for some of these people, you met some of these people at conferences or at events and things like that. And so the dynamic has shifted a little bit. And obviously things, or hopefully things do get better with, you know, vaccines and things like that. But it's just like, oh, there's a little bit of that. Oh, meeting people at conferences and meeting people at summits and building some of these relationships that, you know, 10 years down the line will come into play. It's just me. Oh, I like your comment on Zoom. Doesn't quite cut it all the time. Uh, so it's, it's something to worry about. But I guess the other question I had for you is, is there something that surprised you the most about this field or something that you wish you knew um, sort of maybe 20 years ago um, that now you're like, oh, wow, this would have saved me a lot of time or trouble? Well, uh, probably uh, what I've learned over the years, not so much in the, the most recent year, but over the years, what I've, what I've learned is uh, the art of the possible as opposed to the, uh, the ideal. Academics tend to think in terms of ideals, and that's a worthy thing. But ideals have to be translated into reality. Uh, and, uh, and one has to acknowledge uh, what is the limits uh, of what one can do, and so try to work within that. Uh, and the one thing that I, I discovered working in government as an ambassador and as a special envoy, how little patience I had. I, I, uh, I, I'd grown to be the person, the opposite of what I was when I started, how little patience I had when people came and tried to sell me on pie in the sky, grand notions that I knew were never going to happen uh, at all. Uh, you know, there was a time when I probably would have been one of those people uh, years ago, uh, but uh, how, you know, I even developed a signal for my assistant that, you know, my, my limit of being civil was drawing to a quick end and it was time to hustle them out before I became uncivil uh, about it. Uh, but I think that is the, the, the lesson of learning what is the art of the possible because ultimately politics and diplomacy, it's the art of the possible, not the necessarily the art of the ideal. Yeah, no, definitely a good point there. Well, Ambassador Fam, I've kept you a little longer than planned, but thank you, thank you so much for answering my questions. We hope that sort of as we go and as nominations go through, we get a bit more clarity around this and maybe we can revisit this conversation at some point. But thank you so much for speaking to us about this. Pleasure to speak with you, Marie Noel. All too soon, we've come to the end of today's episode. That was a really interesting conversation for me, and I hope it was for you as well. Um, please do remember to share this with your colleagues, with your friends, and with people within your network so that we take this conversation you know, further. Um, I'm particularly interested to speak to somebody on the other side of the table thinking about what Africa's approach is to countries like the US, especially if we're thinking as a regional sort of economic bloc. That would be a very fascinating conversation, and hopefully we can make that happen. But until then, do engage with us across all social media platforms on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. Um, tag us with questions and we'll be more than happy to respond as well. Um, and yeah, let us know how these conversations go within your network as well. These are conversations that we need to be having, that we need to be thinking about, we need to be iterating through. Anyways, until next week, I hope you do stay well and you stay safe and we'll catch you again. Bye.